Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 112 for October 4th, 2007. Your questions, Steve's answers, number 25. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by Nerds on Site. Looking to grow your IT service business? Find out how Nerds on Site can help. Visit IWantToBeANerd.com. It's time for Security Now, everybody's favorite security podcast. Now officially the best security podcast of the year. Thanks to the folks at the Podcast Expo and the, I don't know, who does the voting? Well, thanks to our listeners, Leo. Oh, you're right. The voters are are you, the listeners. Yeah. And we only asked once, (laughs) which I'm I'm very proud of. (laughs) Very cool. Very cool. We did very well, considering we only asked you to vote once. So you're officially now the best technology and science podcast of 2007. Is that right? I think that's the case. And I think you get some little doohickey and i don't know I'm what, sure. what well, i'm gonna get, get you'll I'm, get an award you'll get a, a plaque or something i'm sure well elaine is going to be there with camera so i may actually be able to put some photos up on the oh, show good. notes oh good elaine is the uh, wonderful woman who uh, transcribes all these security nows yep. we, we have to say that because she's typing even as we speak <laughs> <laughs> she and she's smiling right now <laughs> she's the greatest actually uh, she was laughing so hard she told me during the end of the of listener feedback 24 oh, yeah, which was tattoo. you know yeah. with with the wacky uv tattoo guy that her husband came in to the her to her office and said what in the world is so funny <laughs> well she's she for uh, her bread and butter is court uh, transcripts transcriptions or court reporter and so i don't think you get a lot of laughs out of that no it's pretty dry probably rare that he hears her giggling Maybe not, though. Who knows? So this is a listener feedback day, uh, as are all our even podcasts these days. Listener feedback number 25. And we've got a good set of questions. No wacky 13th this time. Nope. Uh, We're going to launch right into them in a second. But before we do, I do want to mention the good folks at the Nerds On Site. Now proudly in their eighth country, Singapore. They just sent me an email saying they've just opened the Singapore office. It's up and running so that makes Canada, the U.S., Mexico, England, Australia, South Africa, and Bolivia. And there's a simple secret, and Singapore, there's a simple secret to their success, and that is it works. If you're in the IT business and you want to, you know, build your business without going it alone, that's what Nerds on Site is all about. Nerds are independent contractors, so you're in business for yourself. You're just not by yourself. They help you with leads. They help you with training. They help you with marketing. They've got over 250 competencies in their University of Nerdology, ranging from systems architecture design, software development, on-site IT departments, desktop to support, even Soho and residential IT services, which is a huge and growing area right now. If you're a PC or a Mac expert, if you've got a specialty like Cisco or Oracle, you name it, they need it. Fix-it technicians, website designers, programmers, project managers, even sales trainers, security experts, antivirus gurus and more. And by the way, a great way to learn about other technologies like Astaro. They're an authorized Astaro solution provider. 
So as soon as you're a Nerds on Site, you are too. All of their products and services are available through Nerds on Site. Man, this is a great way to make some bank because everybody wants these new uh, UTM solutions. And Astaro is the best, as you know. You, you get free Astaro certified administrator and Astaro certified engineer training. Uh, I mean, this is just fantastic. And of course, it's not just Astaro. They do spin right and lots of other security gateways and solutions. It really is a great way to learn about your business as you grow your business. If you want to know more, what am I saying? Just go to the website, www.iwanttobeanerd.com. www.iwanttobeanerd.com. We do thank Nerds on Site for their very positive, longtime support of security now. It's another, another reason to say they're good people. Nerds on site at www.iwantobeanerd.com. Speaking of nerds, Steve Gibson and I are here. <laughs> uh, we are ready to nerd out with some of your questions. Do you want to yep. mention Spinrite real quick before we move on to that? Oh, I I thought I would give it another vacation since we're Steve. on a bit of a tight schedule, and I don't. <laughs> Steve, all right, I don't folks, take a, make it simple. If you've I don't got a hard, take up, yeah, I yeah. understand. But if you've got a hard drive in trouble, Spinrite GRC.com. It's the best money you'll ever spend. It recovers hard drives. Uh, it helps you maintain your hard drive so you don't have these problems. I got a guy uh, who was ready to spend, I think, a couple of thousand dollars on one of those companies where they take your drive apart and replace the platters. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. You know, it could just be a software problem. You should try Spinrite first. Uh, and I think it was a software problem because the drive would boot up, but it would say, I know NT loader found, right? Said, right. That's where Spinrite can really help you. And uh, I haven't heard back from him, but I'm sure that he's he's been very happy with it. GRC.com. Well, it- it probably is worth mentioning something that's been on my mind. It's not a testimonial, but I, I, I should mention that we keep hearing from people who have, you know, been brought back from the brink of disaster. They, you know, their computers wouldn't boot. They lost their stuff, whatever. I mean, those are pretty much what the testimonials are, are every week. But had Spinrite been run on those drives prior to being you know passing off the cliff then the drives would have never had this problem i mean it you know greg in fact my tech support guy says you know steve you never you never mentioned to security now listeners that it is preventative maintenance it's not just data recovery and i go i know greg but you know i just don't think people are gonna go out and spend 89 dollars because they have extra money well they do when there's a crisis but but you notice i always say the world's best drive maintenance and recovery utility yeah so i just i did want to mention that you know that spinrite does prevent these kinds of problems yes. it yes yeah, you know it is able to way more often than not bring a drive back into use that has already passed out of use but boy if you run it every couple months it will never get into that trouble in the first place right. i mean it's it's really the case right all right let's get to our questions my friends starting with number one numero uno keith in new jersey he says you know, how do you do credit card transactions? I just want to know what service allows you to process credit card transactions. He's talking about your e-commerce solution. I understand how you were able to take all the required information, including the credit card. But then what? Does VeriSign offer a service to charge credit cards? It's a great question because I remember when I was first researching this, I dug around to like find the right um, the right electronic funds transfer, you know, EFTS, uh, electronic funds transfer service or system that would do that. Um, I ended up settling on a system called CyberCash that was 
in the game and had a very nice API. Essentially, I, I downloaded a kit from them and had a, uh, in this case for Windows, although they supported multiple platforms, and uh, they had a DLL, a dynamic link library, that I just added to the server. Oh, that's nice. And, and then my software would interact with that DLL that contained SSL technology, certificates, and all the stuff it needed for connecting to their back-end um, credit card processing system. And as it happens, uh, a couple years ago, VeriSign bought CyberCash, hmm. and the system is called PayFlow Pro. Um, I can't speak for any other facilities because I've never used anything other than PayFlow Pro, which used to be CyberCash and is now VeriSign. One of the reasons is we have never had a single problem with this from day one. Oh, I mean, it, it works. You know, yes, before, and I was worried when VeriSign bought them, I was like, oh no, are they going to change the protocols or make me update something or, you know, mess with something that's already working perfectly? And they have done apparently nothing, at least nothing bad to it. I mean, it just, it works beautifully. And so if we have listeners who have, you know, an interest in doing e-commerce, I, for what it's worth, again, I, I have no relative comparison except to say that nothing has ever not worked perfectly with the PayFlow Pro system originally from CyberCash and now from VeriSign. I mean, so I, for what it's worth, I can vouch for it absolutely, and I would only caution people to be very careful about all the other aspects of doing an e-commerce site. I mean, you really want to protect your, you know, your users' information um, and, you know, just do everything you can to prevent there from being any sort of way of exploiting the site other than the back-end credit card charging process, which is really pretty much nailed down. Yeah, I mean, PayFlow Pro is for somebody who's rolling their own solution. Right. So, I mean, if you're not a programmer like Steve, you're probably going to go to Yahoo stores or somewhere like that and let them do the merchant banking and the transactions and all that. Or or just PayPal. Or PayPal or eBay. Or there's lots of other ways to do it. If you're right. not, because, I mean, this this sounds like a pretty low, a low level solution in the sense that it's for somebody who's already, who's writing an e-commerce system or has an e-commerce system you can plug it into. Yes, that's exactly right. And, you know, I objected, since I have the skill to talk to the back end credit card processing system directly myself i didn't want to give anybody right. else a piece of my action ah. you know a lot of these other services they're not free right. and you know and you know payflow pro is not free either i pay some small percentage you know a transaction fee and 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 a percentage but it's not then marked up again by some somebody else who who's basically using them and putting their own right. wrapper around it yeah you know paypal's fairly expensive i'm trying to remember i think it's for a two dollar, when you when you do a two dollar donation to us, uh, they take thirty seven cents of it. So yeah, pay, PayPal itself. Yeah, it's not insignificant. Yes, yes. Oh, that's the total charges. It maybe PayPal say takes some in a credit card company or whatever, but that's as opposed to like two cents, which would be one percent. Right. Yeah, yep. no, that's a lot. Yep. Uh, question number two: Russell Johnson in Minnesota. <laughs> It's not Mini Snota yet, but it's going to be Mini Snota soon. <laughs> Wonders about the double-edged sword of SSL proxying. What is your opinion of deploying an SSL proxy, similar to something offered like uh, Finjins, 
Uh, what are the privacy and legal issues of this technology? I helped set up a system using this technology on a public schools network. Also, what disclosures should be made so that users are aware the info they thought was encrypted from the browser to the server is actually being decrypted by the proxy? A CEO of a large company may be unaware that an IT employee or outside contractor can now access his previously impervious encrypted data like credit card numbers and passwords. I know the intention of the software is to prevent using SSL to hide web surfing activity, but is this going too far? I wonder if ISPs would, em- would employ this kind of technology. Now, that would scare me. Yes, they can't. Um, the um, Okay, j- just to sort of give our listeners a little bit of background, an SSL proxy means that that rather than your browser connecting to the the actual remote web server of a site you are visiting like bankofamerica.com with a secure connection instead this proxy is is the is intercepting the connection and and then it is turning around and and creating the 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 secure connection to the remote site the reason this was in, installed, for example, in this public schools network is they wanted to prevent, specifically to prevent what SSL is for, mm. which is encrypting the communication from endpoint to endpoint. So essentially what they did was they inserted their own intermediary endpoint so that the, brow- the, the user or the student in this case, in the case of a public high school or a public school, the, the student is, is connecting to the proxy server. That's one SSL connection. And then a second SSL connection is made from the proxy server to the remote website. The, the reason this is done is that between those two connections in the proxy server, the, the encrypted data is decrypted. It's in the clear and can then be inspected by filtering software. So the school did this because they wanted to be able to insert web filtering software into not only normal HTTP connections, where it's easy to do, but also into HTTPS connections. In order to do that, though, the browsers in the school have to have a a certificate from the proxy and the proxy has to create – well, it, 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 it's a function of how transparent the proxy wants to be. The proxy has to essentially create certificates on the fly that apparently belong to the third-party remote server, and it signs them. Normally, as we know, server certificates are, are signed by trusted certificate authorities, um, Equifax, VeriSign, or whomever. Um, but in order to transparently proxy in, in the way the school district is, there's, there's no way for a man-in-the-middle attack, which is really what an SSL proxy is, if you think about it. It's trying to be a man-in-the-middle right, right. to decrypt that traffic. Well, the beauty of SSL with, with certificates is as long as the certificates are signed by a trusted a, a certificate authority, nobody else can sign a like a fake certificate with that authority because nobody else has that authority's private key. The public key 
allows you to verify the certificate, but you need the private key that 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 would never be released in order to yourself sign it. So what happens is a within this school network, in order to make a secured connection, all the browsers would have to accept a certificate from the proxy or just not have HTTPS connections, but apparently they do. And in fact, this is the way SSL proxies work is that you, you know, all of the browsers have, have a certificate from the, from the proxy. So the, that essentially means I trust the proxy to do anything it wants. And in so trusting it, one of the things it wants to do is to decrypt your traffic for inspection. Wow. So, so relative to privacy and legal issues, I mean, you, we, we immediately can see what they would be. First of all, the assumed privacy of HTTPS is gone because it is being the, the traffic is being decrypted at the border, inspected, filtered, logged. I mean, anything. Well, but it's, that, okay, it's okay if you trust the intermediate. Correct. So, for example, the CEO of the large company presumably company. knows. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. It's his. It's his company. Especially if his if he's the CTO yeah. of the large yeah. he's company, he's the one who, should, who can be all right. Yeah, yeah. certainly. Um, you know, I would say that there there it would be worth and probably as, as as for like school district policy or corporate policy in a corporate setting, there would in the policy manual it yeah. says you know. You should know that, you know, you're using corporate property. These are company computers. They are subject to monitoring, logging, surveillance, filtering, you know, basically behave yourself. I'd like to point out, though, while that's good policy, it's not required by law. Right. The law says it's a corporate computer. They can do anything they want with it. Right. From 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 the get go without having right. to specifically notify you. Tell you nothing. Although I think it's a very good policy to do so. I mean, that's just yeah. that's just good good citizenship well especially if some damage were to occur as a consequence right. of that proxying like now, you know like data escaped from from the organization's control why can't an isp do that to me well an isp could if you accepted the a certificate They'd and treat to modify them, my system they exactly they would have to add a certificate to your browser and i mean i'm already nervous about the hong kong post office doing that <laughs> you keep bringing the hong kong <laughs> now now the, the the truth is that many isps now give you a cd that of software to install usually it's a pppoe dialer for dsl but there's you nothing know, the, the, that couldn't do there's no reason they couldn't be i mean they modify ie and they often say provided by verizon and they they convert it to their homepage yep. and do all that. So you're right, Leo. I mean, I from a that. tech from a technical standpoint, they would not be prevented from doing this. And this is why every time we talk about SSL and anti phishing, I talk about looking up the chain of trust because what you would see is if you thought you were on eBay, you know, HTTPS colon slash slash www.ebay.com and you and you thought you were on a secure eBay page, if this were being done, you would right click on your um, browser's page and you would see eBay that there's the eBay certificate had been signed by Cox.net. Ah, okay. Now, so it'd still be an eBay certificate, but it'd be signed by your internet service provider or your boss or the school district. It would be clear that it wasn't eBay's. Correct. Okay. So there correct. is a way to tell. There's no way they and, can hide that. Right. And, and and in fact, well, for for users who are smart enough and aware enough to perform this test. I right. mean, I think 
It is the case, and this is a point I was going to mention last week when we were talking about the problem of phishing with open ID service. In general, I think we're going to see motion towards preventing phishing attacks in the future. We've already seen the green field in your URL mm-hmm. that, that some browsers will now pr- uh, provide if you have an extended authentication certificate, which you know you have to pay more money for, which mm-hmm. bugs me. But you know we're beginning to see this. I imagine a system where web browsers preferentially connected over SSL if it was available. So even though you go HTTP colon slash slash eBay.com, imagine the web browser also tries to make an SSL connection and does so and prefers it over the non-secure connection if it's available. Hmm. It used to be the case that SSL was very expensive in terms of computing to establish due to the computation overhead of of, um, secure sockets and the public key crypto that has to be done once during the connection. But machines have gotten so powerful now and servers are so powerful that there just isn't – it's still the case that SSL is – you know, doing a secure connection is a little more computationally burdensome, but not so that it's significant in this day and age. Right. So I would say the, the other reason uh, an ISP would, would be not motivated to – insert their own certificate is it would really open them up to liability if if anything ever happened and it was found that they were inserting themselves in secure connections without really clear making it obvious that they were doing so like like for example adding their own line to every secure page that's displayed saying this page has been filtered by your isp and if they did that who would use these people <laughs> yeah <laughs> for your protection filter no, it's, for your it's protection. exactly like the old spyware argument it's like oh well right. we told our people that right. you know we were installing you know mm-hmm. this new search system on their mm-hmm. browsers like no you didn't and if mm-hmm. you did they would hate you so <laughs> so don't <laughs> right eric anonymously somewhere near the hong kong post office that's actually that's actually what he said in his posting, Leo. I didn't make that up. He he was he was being funny. Is there any way to use web-based email to send email? Web-based email to send email while remaining completely anonymous. I tried using Tor, but every web-based email I used asked me to turn on cookies or Java. This, as we know, can defeat Tor and give away your local public IP. I suppose that's why they require cookies in Java. Well, now that's it's an interesting question because um, it's it's the case that your computer can only give away the information it has, and if you're behind a, a residential or you know local NAT router of some kind, you almost certainly have a private IP, not a public IP. That is, your computer is one nine two dot one six eight dot something or other, or ten dot or one seven two dot something. Uh-huh. So. So it might be that your computer doesn't know what your true local public IP is. It only has your private IP. So once that's the case and you're running a Tor client on your machine so that your traffic is encrypted to the first Tor node, the second Tor node, and the third Tor node after which it goes out, then you really are anonymous. That is, even a web-based email service that was putting the client IP 
in the email headers, as we've talked about before, as far as I know, they all do except Google. Um, for whatever reason, Google Mail doesn't. It uses um, some some um, probably something that they can decrypt into that, but at least it's not there. Whereas Hotmail and um, Yahoo Mail, last time I looked, both were putting the client IP in there. Still, what what those web-based systems would see as the client would be the IP of the last Tor node in the chain. So again, your your browser through which you are using this web-based email through Tor, it can't give away what it doesn't know. And it doesn't know your local public IP. So in fact, I think you could be, if you're careful, you could be anonymous using Tor as long as your local machine did not have your public IP as long as you were behind a NAT router that was giving your machine you know, a, a private 192.168 that absolutely does not identify you on the Internet. There are, I should point out, uh, web-based email services designed around privacy. Phil Zimmerman, uh, the creator of PGP, worked with a company called Hushmail. And uh, Hushmail uses PGP encryption and presumably has lots of other privacy protections uh, they have secure free email. They also have, by the way, they do certificates now. I didn't see that's something new. Um, something to look into, uh, hushmail.com. Yes, I mean, that's, that's true very, privacy. And it's a very good service and, and well, well respected. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think they're absolutely uh, reliable in that, in that regard. Moving on to our next question Dave Farrell, David Farrell in London, raises another point about Tor, the onion router, which we again underscore is used for privacy, not for anonymity, not for encryption or security. Dear Stephen Leo, I'm an avid listener of Security Now and the other netcasts. I benefit greatly from the insight you have to offer, so thanks. You're welcome, David. Thanks for your kind words. One thought that I kept having as you two explored some of the issues with Tor recently was that it seems that using Tor is, in fact, less secure, less secure than normal browsing if you're performing ordinary web surfing. Here's what he means. Without Tor, I'm trackable by IP address, of course. But my data, assuming secure Wi-Fi or Lambda router, goes from my PC through my ISP's machine and then is routed the actual page I'm visiting. The servers with access to my data, such as emails, passwords, and the like, all belong to web hosting companies, well, okay, in whom we place some, some degree of trust. I assume that B Broadband or BT or NTL will not be sniffing my HTTP stream for username, password, form posts. But contrast that with the use of Tor, especially now that we're seeing that <laughs> there are Tor servers owned by governmental agencies, the Hong Kong Post. Oh, no. Sure, I'm now no longer trackable by IP address, but I place a significant degree of trust in the random person whose Tor node I'm using. As evidenced by the comments on the last show, it is possible and not uncommon for there to be a sniffer at the Tor node. So assuming that I'm engaging in normal web browsing without SSL or a VPN connection, seems to me the risks of data sniffing Sniffing vastly outweigh the benefits of anonymity. What do you guys think? I think he raises a really good point. Essentially, clearly, there's this this cluster of interest around Tor's exit traffic because people are doing things through Tor that requires anonymity. So you might argue that that Tor is drawing people to itself that is – you know, spies or security researchers or governments or, or, or whatever who are using Tor as potential high-value sources 
for questionable web traffic. And 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 David's point is that you know by contrast when when he's not using Tor, his 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 data goes to his ISP and immediately scatters to the winds. It's going you know it, there there is no central um, except for the ISP machine where his data does egress onto the internet. There is no central concentration of his data as there is in the case of a Tor node, nor and I think more importantly, is there any reason for someone to suspect that that data might be interesting to them, whereas the data exiting Tor nodes, eh, it's, you know, probably a little more, you know, risque. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, let's emphasize it's for anonymity, not security. And it's good, right. it's and, good and to know people that. Who, people who are are wanting anonymity, I would argue, and I know you would too, Leo, that absolutely that's a right. It's, a, it's something that the Internet provides, and it's, a, it's something worth having. So it's not the case that people who want to be anonymous are doing bad things, but analysis of traffic has shown that you know Tor tends to attract that too. Mm-hmm. Joe Graff, Sacramento, California, he's got an idea for making uh, your feedback form Screen reader friendly. We talked about this a couple of uh, episodes ago. A blind uh, listener said, yeah, you know, I, I understand what you're doing to prevent bots, but but uh, makes it hard for me to see with my screen right. reader. Steve, all you have to do is add some alt text to the images. So just use the alt tag in your images to something that'll make sense to the, I know, Leo. <laughs> to the user when the screen readers read it. Also, if you want to be XHTML compliant, you have to have alt text anyway. Yeah, of course, alt text makes it accessible. And the bots love it. <laughs> the bot can read it just as any screen reader. I exactly. think I mentioned that when we were talking. I think I said you can't use an alt text. So that's the problem. Yeah. Is anything that a screen reader could read, a bot could read. Exactly. And that, I mean, as you, as you said, that's the problem. And I just wanted to close the loop with, with Joe and for any other users who are thinking that, you know, that would work. The problem is that that's text in the HTML, which is exactly what the bots are out there sniffing for. So, I mean, much as I have absolutely no interest or intent to make things difficult for, you know, visually impaired users of our form, and in fact, we enumerated the fields on the form in order with, with, you know, Leo typing the tab key so that we could let people know who were listening how to fill out the form uh, and do so successfully. I think that's a good way to do it. That's, That's your cheat sheet. No yep. robots listen. As far as we know, no robots listen to security now. Let us know if you're a robot and you're listening. <laughs> Laura Cooksey in, uh, is that is Laura next? I want to make sure I didn't skip anybody. Yeah. Yep. Laura Cooksey in Burke, VA, a suburb of Washington, D.C., says, I've used Steve's free unplug-and-pray widget to disable universal plug-and-play service on all my computers. Also, oh, I like you, Laura. Disabled UPnP on my Linksys WRT54G yep. router. However, Microsoft strongly recommends that UPnP be turned on in routers used with Xbox Live to ensure best performance in multiplayer games. Since I've disabled UPnP on my computers, is it safe to enable UPnP in my router full-time? Or should I only enable it when I'm planning a game and then disable it when I'm done? And while we're talking about that, maybe I, I, I could ask you about UPnP 2, which Microsoft says solves uh, the security issues of universal plug-and-play. I've not let yet looked at UPnP2, but yeah. I definitely will. That's and what their Windows Home Server uses. And since a lot of people, I think, are going to use Windows Home Server as a router and a bridge to the Internet, uh, 
I think we should look into this. Oh, absolutely will for sure. Um, Laura's question was great because the, the answer is, well, first of all, no, that it is not safe to enable UPnP in the router. In fact, if you had to disable UPnP facilities anywhere in your network, Laura, the one place you want to disable it is the router. You could even leave it turned on on all the machines that are behind the router. The The reason I did universal plug and play, or sorry, unplug and pray widget was that, as was the case with probably every server Microsoft ever created, and of course, universal plug and play service is a server, meaning that it had an open port. So anybody not behind a router had this open port exposed to the internet and there was a buffer overflow that allowed people to take over your machines remotely. So at the time, I immediately created Unplug and Pray just to turn it off because also at the time, almost no one needed it. Now, for example, we're seeing the case that with the Xbox, it's it would like to have universal plug and play enabled on the router so that it's able to essentially open incoming ports back through the router to your LAN. Thus, the danger of having universal plug-and-play, first first edition, that is version one of universal plug-and-play enabled on your router, is that even with the services disabled, your Windows universal plug-and-play universal <laughs> service disabled, it's still possible just using some UDP and TCP traffic that any Trojan could easily generate. It's still possible for them to query your LAN, find any universal plug-and-play equipped devices, determine that it's a gateway, i.e. your router, and then talk to it behind your back in order to enable incoming unsolicited traffic, which is exactly why we've got the router there as one of the one of the substantial security benefits. For example, if Windows even in a vulnerable state were behind the router, that universal plug-in play vulnerability would have never been a problem it was only for people whose machines were directly on the internet which even now just saying that just sort of makes me shudder because <laughs> be, because having a nat router is just such good security but if you enable universal plug and play on the router and something did get into your machine that could talk to the router then you're in trouble right now the good news is i did some research on this there are only two ports that the Xbox actually has to have open. Microsoft documents this on in a knowledge base article 908874. And so if you just go to Microsoft.com and put in KB for knowledge base 908874, you can go there. But I can also tell you what it is because it's very simple. The, uh, the Xbox Live system needs the UDP port 88 and both UDP and TC ports 3074 mapped into your network. So what you can do is, and obviously Laura listening to this and is very tech savvy or security savvy, um, you, you would like to give your Xbox a static IP 
within your LAN. Normally, when you turn a computer on, it gets the next address available, 192.168.01.02.03.04, and just sort of goes up that way. What you'd like to do, though, is you'd like your, your Xbox to always receive the same IP so that it's not floating around, its IP is not changing. That's because you want to forward those ports I just named, UDP 88 and TCP and UDP 3074, you'd like to forward them to that fixed IP where the Xbox will always reside. All routers now allow you to define a, a fixed IP based on the MAC address, the, the MAC address of the LAN adapter on the network. So you first look at the client list to find your Xbox, and it'll be listed there based, up, uh, based on its IP. Then you, you configure DHCP to always give that MAC address the same IP. And you probably want to pull it up out of your normal range, like 192.168.0.40 or something. doesn't want to be too high because some NAT routers won't allow the, the numbers to go like all the way up to 255. But, you know, if 40 would be safe unless you've got 42 computers in your LAN, and I think few users probably do. So that would always give the, X, the Xbox the same IP. Then you configure what's called static port forwarding to statically map those ports to the Xbox. The beauty of this is that you do not need universal plug-and-play enabled. Essentially, you've done what what the Xbox would have done anyway with universal plug-and-play, but you've done so by, by manually configuring it rather than having it automatically configured, and it's the automatic configuration that is so worrisome with universal plug-and-play. And in that case, you've got the highest level of connectivity for your Xbox. Microsoft uses um, some terms. There's like three degrees of connectivity. Um, there's moderate and strict and something else. Anyway, you and I think it's open. Uh, and you get the open degree of connectivity, which means anybody else is able to connect into you, even if they're behind a NAT router, which has got strict connectivity, and because they haven't gone through what, what you have to get yourself configured. So you've just described something called port forwarding, and basically UPnP makes it easy for people who don't, who don't want to go through this trouble or understand it to, to get this kind of connectivity, but the risk is that a bad guy can get that kind of connectivity, too. Exactly. So do it by hand. Learn, and obviously Laura is smart enough to know this, uh, learn how to do it by hand. It's not that complicated once you get And then the she can tell all of her Xbox friends and spread right. the word, because right. it's, it, it won't introduce um, significant insecurity because though those ports, even though they're now open, they're only going to go to to that IP address where you've put your Xbox. So nothing else can get it. And um, you know, we hope that the Xbox doesn't have any unknown vulnerabilities yeah. that would allow people to crawl into it. You're relying on Xbox Live being secure and and the Xbox right. being secure. But you know, that's. I mean, you got to do that. Gotta trust somebody, Leo. Gotta trust somebody. I don't know who, but Common D in Australia's capital. Canberra. <laughs> we now know the uh, the capital of Australia <laughs> has monkeys on the brain. Leo mentioned that an infinite number of monkeys typing for an infinite time would produce not just a work of Shakespeare, all the works of Shakespeare. I thought this odd assumption over. I think if there are an infinite number of monkeys, they wouldn't need infinite time. One of them, 
Well, I'm just quoting the old saw. One of them out of the infinite number would type the work up in a finite time in a few hours, depending on his typing speed. If there were only one monkey, he would need infinite time. You're right. You're right. So somewhere in the middle of the allocated infinite time, the monkey would type up the work, i.e. would actually, it would be a finite time. So he could stop and get on with his life. The old paradigm could be modified to one or more monkeys typing for an unknowably long but finite period of time would produce a work of Shakespeare. I misstated it. It's actually an infinite number of monkeys typing for an infinite number of time would produce all written works of all kinds, plus a lot of gibberish. Yeah, I liked... I liked. Uh, it has got a good point, though. I liked Kalman's... Uh, well, I, I, I like this also from the standpoint of we're often dealing, as we talk about security, with really big numbers and, you know, issues of, oh, it's unbreakable or, oh, it, you know, it'll only take a few minutes to break it. Or we've got, you know, this many bits gives us this many, you know, this much crypto protection and all that. So, you know, we're dealing with sort of scales of size and and things less than infinity. And uh, so are his monkeys. <laughs> well, and that's the thing about monkey uh, monkeys. That's the thing about infinity. Infinity is a special number. Oh, it's big, Leo. It's not just a it's not just a really big number. It's <laughs> infinity. So, infinity times infinity is actually no bigger than infinity by itself. Or is it? I don't know. There are there are classes of infinity, I think. Yeah, oh, by, yeah. There are mathematicians who like spend their days thinking about Succeeds this. Exceeds my meager brain capacity. We don't have to. Yeah. Adam in Ottumwa, Iowa says, I've been dutifully listening along with Security Now since its inception. Yay. 112 episodes ago. I was thinking about the recent episodes where you and Leo refer to saving the browser's state when hosting e-commerce sites. My question is, how would could this work with Safari and private browsing? I haven't used this feature and don't claim to know anything about it, but it's my understanding it does not save any history cookies, session data whatsoever. Is this really true? Wouldn't you have problems with private browsing and e-commerce sites? Well, that was the whole point of what you were doing, is it it, it bypasses this issue. Well, it didn't depend upon that. I did not know what Safari's private browsing was until I I, I got this posting and t- took a look, a look around, and I think it is extremely cool, Leo. It's right there on you know the Safari main menu, and... You turn on private browsing and it pops up a notice warning you about all the things that are deliberately not going to save your state. When private browsing is turned on, web pages are not added to the history. Items are automatically removed from the downloads window. Information isn't saved for autofill. Searches are not added to the pop-up menu. Until you close the window, you still can click the back and forward buttons to return the pages you've opened. But uh, And that's where it stops. But just to go on, no cookies are saved. No state is saved. Isn't that cool? I didn't even know that was there. Yeah. And it's funny because as I was doing some research, I found some blogs that referred to it as porn mode. Yeah, that's because... what it's for, of course. <laughs> Everybody knows that. <laughs> well, what else no. are you trying to hide? Because, you know, so much effort has gone into um, eliminating the the state of where people surf with all ki- you know all kinds of third party tools right. and i thought wow this is a cool feature for a browser to have yeah, and yeah. all browsers ought to have it i think ie7 has something similar it basically clears history when you close it but okay. the point is your system was designed specifically to get around that by not using cookies yes and in fact my system would work perfectly even with private browsing enabled in Safari and any other browser because essentially it's the page itself. The page the user receives carries the state information, not 
cookies or URLs or history or any other mechanism. So when you submit the form, that page that contained the data, um, a piece of it goes back with the form to the server. So it is the case that um, that at least GRC's e-commerce system functions without scripting or cookies of any sort because the actual page is where that state is saved. But I just, for users who hadn't run across that private browsing feature, I wanted to put this question in because it's like, hey, I'm glad to know that's yeah, there. That's that is a nice feature, cool. yeah. I, you know, I, I've been getting a lot of emails saying, Steve claimed he invented this, and that's, that's been going on for years. I don't think you, I, 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 we said this last time, but I just want to reiterate, I, you didn't claim you invented it. No, I just came up with the solution that worked for me. Independently, you came up with that solution. Yeah, but it's but it, yeah, of course, it's you're not the only one who thought of it, and you weren't even the first one who thought of it. And I don't think you claimed that. Chris Noble of Wellington, New Zealand, gets the Gold Star Award. He writes, "Nice work putting some hidden fields into your feedback form to trip up the bots, Steve." However, <laughs> however, rather than actually specifying type equals hidden in the input tag, which bots can easily see, and of course could be smart enough to ignore. You could do this via CSS, removing the hidden alert from inside the form. In the input tag, do something like class equals ABC, and then in your style sheet include, you know, ABC visible, visibility hidden, display none. Uh, still not bulletproof. In fact, it's not because, of course, the bot also sees the CSS. But okay, at least it's one step harder for a bot to figure out it's a hidden field than it should be uh, left alone. I think most spiders and bots ignore style info. They may well dip into these. You have to include the CSS if you don't put it in line. And I, 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 they could load that CSS and look at it. So you're they right. Depends how sophisticated they want to be. Yeah, I just, I just liked it because it's, it's, it sort of fits my model of something simple that's providing some additional resistance to, you know, bots taking advantage of our technology. And and while it's not, you know, galactically powerful, it's like okay. I mean, I like that because having the hidden tag right there couldn't make it any more obvious to a bot that this is not a field that a user would fill in. And if you didn't have it, you know, you might assume that the bot writer didn't ever consider that they ought to, you know, parse the CSS file and then have to do a matchup of CSS right. class. That's a little more complicated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's substantially more complicated. Yeah. yeah. So it's like, yeah, I, I give him the gold star. Good. Gold star. Clever. Andy in Iowa, another Iowaian. Had a common question about Spinrite and RAID. I love Spinrite. I love RAID. I'd like to use Spinrite on RAID. Is that okay? <laughs> um, we get the question a lot. And so I, I don't want to take a lot of time about this, but I want to uh, explain that there are, there are, in our mind, sort of two types of RAID controllers, what we call thin RAID and full-on industrial strength thick RAID. The the distinction being that a thick RAID controller is a a controller with a coprocessor, probably has got some caching memory on it, and it's really decoupled the drives in the RAID array from the machine. So the machine dumps a bunch of data on the controller, which the controller caches, and then the controller independently turns around and writes that data in in so-called lazy writing to the drives of the RAID array. Now, this is as distinct from motherboards that now often will have a RAID controller on them, but it's a little promise technology chip, 
And all it's really doing is basically allowing that to be a bootable RAID. So there's some bio support that allows a couple drives to be booted. And then you still need a software driver in your OS in order to essentially implement the RAID in software. People often think that these uh, motherboard RAIDs are hardware RAIDs. They're not. They're software RAIDs. Yes, they are. They're just sort of hardware assist that just gets the the RAID and allows it to be bootable. But once it gets going, the OS has a driver which does this in software. Right. So, so relative to Spinrite, it is generally okay to run Spinrite on a RAID zero, a hardware, which is a hardware RAID or, uh, or even a BIOS RAID. No, no. And in fact, you would not want to run it on a on a on a so-called thick RAID controller uh-huh. ever because, well, at least not not on the controller. That is what we tell people to do is just temporarily take the drive off of ah, the RAID Do individual drives. Exactly. Yeah. Stick it on to a regular motherboard con- um, connector, which you probably have right there on the motherboard and spin right. will see it and run on it just fine. And that works because you don't need a file system. You don't need to know that the files are all there. You're looking so low at a, such a low level. You're not looking at what's how it's written or anything like at that. just the raw physical sector level. Right. right. right, right. And, and so we will, so we won't break spin, right? will never break the raid. It won't cause it to be non-functional. It doesn't matter if you've got raid five or six or 27 or whatever you're using spin around work, work on just fine as long as it's talking just to the bare drive not through the controller but in the case of the thin raid because when you're running spin right there is no operating system with its own software drivers it will see the drives separately um, in the in the normal case however you still in a mirroring configuration where you are writing to both drives, but you're only reading from one, typically, in a mirror. You're not redundantly reading from the drives. So so the point is, it, it does not make sense to run SpinWrite on mirror drives behind a thin RAID controller. Even there, you would want to unplug them from that connector and, and plug them into a regular motherboard controller. But... In the case of striping, where you, you've rated them to expand the size. So, for example, you've got 200 gig drives and you're running in RAID 0, which is where you, essentially you've created a virtual 200 gig drive. There you could run SpinWrite in place with the drives just like they are because essentially the the queries are are being split between drives, but there's no redundancy of data. It's a redundancy of data or in the case of a of a thick raid it's the caching which is sort of decoupling spinrite from the drive and that's what you want to avoid you want the spinrite to actually have the full and undivided attention of the drive makes sense and actually I'm glad you addressed this uh, this notion of software raid cuz uh, I've said it for a long time, but nobody believes me. <laughs> you, they believe. Uh, Eliezer Martinez, listening from Puerto Rico, wonders about OpenDNS. He says, I recently started using OpenDNS because it supposedly speeds up the loading of pages. Seems to, he says, mostly because they uh, block known phishing sites. After listening to your latest feedback episode in which you explained the pros and mostly the cons of using Tor, it made me question whether OpenDNS is worth using. Maybe I'm paranoid. Thank you, Steve. But I stopped using it in fear that sensitive information like Internet banking transactions could be monitored by the open DNS people. What are your thoughts about it? Am I mixing up two different things or should the same precautions be taken 
when redirecting web traffic through a third party as uh, with OpenDNS? Well, that's a really great question. OpenDNS, of course, is a is a essentially an independent uh, domain name server system, and it is popular with many security conscious users. I use it all the time. Yes, um, In the fact, idea- I put it on my router, so every computer on my system uses. Open DNS. Exactly. So, you know, the idea being that, uh, for, first of all, it is it is generally high performance. Often it's higher performance than your ISP's own DNS servers. The sort of tend to be unwanted stepchildren right. of ISPs. <laughs> you know, they're just like, ah, DNS is not a very sexy thing to, for them to be offering. The, 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 so they sometimes don't get fast servers or they're overloaded. And, and, and the idea, of course, is that anytime we're going out on the Internet and surfing somewhere, we're using a URL generally with a domain name so for example ebay.com the first time you use ebay.com or and even periodically your system needs to go and have that that ebay eBay.com converted into the actual internet ip address that as we know is what dns does so if it's if your ISP's servers, your DNS servers, which would be the default when you set up a, a, an account with your ISP, if those servers are slow, then it takes longer for you to get to eBay.com and potentially everything else. So, I mean, the speed of DNS is sort of an, a not um, often discussed but very important aspect of the overall performance you feel in doing things on the Internet. So... OpenDNS has very fast and often faster servers than your ISP, so your browser will get the IP that it's looking for more quickly using the OpenDNS servers. But what about the security issues? Well, the um, security is a concern from a standpoint of of there have been problems with so-called DNS poisoning. That is, if you if you were going to eBay.com. Your, your browser is going to inherently trust the information that it gets from DNS. So if the DNS server lied about Microsoft's IP, and you, when you were going to Microsoft.com, your browser would go to the wrong IP. Now, once again, Secure Sockets solves this problem because SSL connections cannot be spoofed and fooled. But... Lots of people would just go to Microsoft, you know, HTTP colon slash slash Microsoft.com, not the secure version. So it would be possible to spoof Microsoft and really confuse someone and allow them to be misled because, you know, even their web browser would show www.microsoft.com. Oftentimes, phishing sites will obscure the URL and use like hex notation or or a decimal notation for URLs or or some fancy way of, of obscuring what's actually up in the URL, assuming that most people don't glance up there to verify that they're at Microsoft.com. The, the potential potency of, of DNS poisoning or some sort of DNS man-in-the-middle attack is that your browser would think – it was really at Microsoft.com, even though it wasn't. But aside from security, the other the other um, issue here is privacy, and we're going to be talking about this in our explicitly more in our episode about third parties, because here again we have a third party phenomenon. There's us, and there's 
eBay or Microsoft, and there's our DNS server. The DNS server does know every site we visit because we're having to ask the DNS server for the IP address of every site we visit. So it's, it's the case that the DNS server really has nothing but our IP address. On the other hand, that's all any other third party generally has about us, um, although it's a little more potent in the open ID case because we're authenticating with them. So presumably there's some sort of an account relationship there where there isn't one with a DNS server. But again, there is this third party phenomenon that um, that is an issue when you're using open DNS. Although the, the presumption is these are good guys, they are not tracking people. They're even going further by, and this is what he talked about, blocking phishing sites. They, they work not to carry the domain names of bad sites so that your browser can't go to a bad site. Even if it wanted to, it's trying to look up that DNS name, which is not is is deliberately not carried by the open DNS servers, it's sort of like it's like very much like what people some some do as we've talked about with the hosts file. In the hosts file, we're blocking DNS queries locally by by preventing the query from ever leaving our machine. Instead, the hosts file provides, you know, typically just the you know one one twenty seven dot zero dot zero dot one, you know, in order to prevent that to prevent our browser from going outside of our machine. Open DNS does the same sort of thing, but gives you the advantage of sort of centralized monitoring and management of that. And now we are at the last question. And Sydney <laughs> in Jacksonville, Florida, who raises a very troubling privacy concern. But before we get to that, <laughs> let me mention, if you're having security issues at your workplace, you might want to call our good friends at Astaro. There are Longtime sponsor and supporter of security. Now, the Astaro Security Gateway is it when it comes to protecting businesses of any size. In fact, that new version 7 software is great because it scales uh, to just about any size uh, operation. And that's that's very cool. It has, you know, without the need for additional load balancing, it has the ability uh, to, uh, I think you can add up to 10 uh, Astaro Security Gateways. And that means you've got scalability. But let me tell you why you might want to do this. Because of all the security features. You've got a firewall, remote access, VPN, intrusion protection, of course. Three kinds of antivirus. Antivirus for the web. Two kinds for email alone. Transparent encryption at the gateway, which is really cool. You've got VPN now, uh, including IPsec L2TP over IPsec and PPTP tunneling with SSL. Uh, it just goes on and on. Look, it's free to try it in your business. All you got to do is call 877, the number four, Astaro, 877-427-8276. You can also download the new Astaro version 7 and uh, try it out if you'd like to do that. And if you're a non-commercial, you know, a, a, a hobbyist user, you could download it and use it for free, including that saves that 79 euro a year subscription. You get all of the features. The anti-spam updates, the antivirus updates. Astaro, they're great people. The best of breed in open source and commercial software to protect you like no one else can. 877, the number four, A-S-T-A-R-O. I'm using Astaro Security Gateway in my office and it just makes me feel good. 877-427-8276. We thank Astaro for their support of Security Now. And now, Steve, 
the last question. Can you still I'm hear? ready. You still hear me? All right. I'm ready. You ready? This is going to be a tough one. <laughs> no, I don't know. Steve and Leo, my question is about utilizing PayPal's virtual debit card. Prior to downloading the software, you're asked to verify your system. This is the card that gives you a new number every time you use it. Yeah, it's very cool. Yeah, I have a debit card with them, but, I, but I'm, I'm really tempted to use this system. Prior to downloading the software, you're asked to verify your system requirements. If everything checks out, you can then download and install the software. As I clicked on the Download Now button, my system, which is guarded by HostMon, a host file manager, we are just talking about host files, yeah. blocked the site, and I was redirected to the default safe site. I was able to discover that the PayPal download link actually points to a doubleclick.net site. Huh? What is the purpose uh, for this? Is it safe? Should I remove doubleclick.net from my host file manager and disregard future alarms? Wow. Is that an ad that's on there? What's going on? No, it's very disturbing. Um, it's, I mean, I was, I was sad to hear this. What, what it means is that, that PayPal has some sort of relationship with doubleclick and that that double click is is essentially redirecting people to the actual download. So PayPal has a link to double click, and in the URL tail is the URL that PayPal wants. So essentially, it's a way of allowing double click to play cookie games with people's oh, that web makes browsers. Me mad. Have you it verified really, that they're doing this? No, I have not verified by I, I um and I will by the next show. I'll 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 close this loop to that's make sure. That's infuriating. Cuz isn't that really annoying? I, that, I hope that, that's not true. Yeah, well, from what he's described, that's you know, that's exactly what what he's describing is that is that in downloading the software that he was his browser is being routed through doubleclick.net which creates a first party relationship with doubleclick.net allowing them to play cookie games mm. with his browser knowing that he's a PayPal user knowing that he's downloading the virtual debit card and then doubleclick.net is is then bouncing them back to PayPal in order for him to get his downloaded software and his host file manager blocked that nonsense because it's got doubleclick.net nulled out essentially so rightly that his so. system yeah absolutely <laughs> yeah, rightly so yeah. so i wanted to tell um our listener uh, who i guess was anonymous that uh you know he absolutely probably wants to keep hostmon and his hostmom file manager working just like it is because it's doing the right thing and if what we assume is true paypal is um you know up to some shenanigans that are compromising his privacy well we'll look into it i don't want to uh hang paypal uh yet we should find it we'll figure this out yes i will verify for <clears throat> sure and it'll be number one in next week's errata okay and that was sydney in jacksonville florida ah great so, oh yeah there is yeah yeah very interesting i uh May, does DoubleClick provide a downloading bandwidth service or something? No, no, no. See, the idea is all they have to do, if if PayPal route, sends his browser to them and, and with PayPal's um, website in the URL tail, that allows DoubleClick to receive the link to find out where it came from, play first-party cookie games with the browser, and then redirect the user back to the data in the URL tail, wow. which will cause the browser to download from PayPal, but having made a little quick visit through DoubleClick Ooh. in the process, which is really annoying. Ooh. 
Anyway, we don't uh, know that for sure yet, yeah. folks. We'll, uh, it'll be top of the errata list in next week's Security Now. I'll be sure to tune in. We hope you all turn in. Remember, you can get uh, Security Now in a 16-kilobit version at Steve's site, grc.com slash security now. That's where the show notes live. Uh, that's where Elaine's great transcriptions of each and every show are. And, of course, Steve's got a security forum there where you can post your questions so uh, you can get into the next episode of Security Now. Um, or actually the next, well, you might be in the next episode or the next question and answer episode. We do them every other episode. Yep. And uh, that's where you can also get Spin Right, everybody's favorite disc maintenance and recovery. <laughs> maintenance. Right. It does that, too. And, of course, all his free, useful security tools like Unplug and Pray and Shoot the Messenger Decombobulator and Shields Up, which is now, what, over 50 million uses. Oh, it's 54, 55. And, in fact, Leo, I can confirm and announce that next week's podcast will be discussing a new fun free thing oh. that uh, GRC will be um, will be unveiling. Well, ain't you the man. That'd be neat. That's great. Thank you, Steve, for all that you do. And thank you all for listening to Security Now. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye, Steve. Bye, Leo. Security Now.